We want to take a break from Acts today and examine what the Scripture says about the Lord's Supper. Before we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, I want to answer two questions concerning the Lord's table from the Bible and from this passage and others. What is the Lord's Supper and why should we take it? Throughout uh, the history of the church, the Lord's Supper has been one of the most contentious and divisive doctrines in church history. Thousands of people have died for their stand on this issue. Some of our heroes in church history would consider us heretics. Did you understand, do you understand that? Because of our position on the Lord's table. Did you hear what I said? Heroes of ours would consider us heretics because of our stand on the Lord's table. For example, Martin Luther doubted Ulrich Zwingli's salvation because Zwingli denied the spiritual presence of Jesus in the elements. Zwingli believed in the memorial view of the Lord's Supper. This is basically what our understanding is at our church. And Martin Luther called Zwingli, for lack of a better term, a heretic and said, I don't even believe he's saved. After he died, that's what he announced and said. Martin Luther, our hero, the Reformation. It's so interesting to me how hermeneutics is at the heart of almost every major issue within the church. Just like so many other issues in the church, how we interpret a passage in the Bible determines where we land on a particular doctrine. We have said this countless times from the pulpit. We believe in a literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation. Whether it's dealing with passages that are prophetic in nature or passages concerning the gifts or passages related to apologetics or even passages focused on the ordinances. For example, baptism and the Lord's Supper. All of this goes back to our hermeneutic, how we study our Bible. It is a crucial a, a crucial study. Briefly, again, a literal, historical, grammatical method of interpretation does not mean that we ignore all symbols and figures of speech. It means we seek to understand what the original author was saying in each specific passage. We assume God used the normal rules of language and grammar to reveal himself through the writers. Even Martin Luther, it's very interesting, said that he believed everybody could read their Bibles and understand their Bibles if they just read it in its normal, plain sense. God wrote through men in a way that the average Christian could read the Scriptures and understand what it meant. He wrote in a historical context through these men. And this method of interpretation must be used on both Old Testament passages and New Testament passages. I will be explaining further tonight in our first systematic theology class 
of the Institute at 4.30 a little bit more about this. I strongly advise many of you to consider coming out, even if you just come for this first class. It's the foundation of interpreting all Bible passages, including prophecy, which we'll focus on tonight. So as I was preparing for this eschatology class, I decided I would go through, do a good study of the Lord's Supper tonight, today in light of the, the participation in it tonight. As I began studying the Lord's Supper passages, the two subjects collided, eschatology and the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Often what causes these issues in the church over the Lord's Supper is exactly the same problem that causes people to divide over eschatology. It's the same thing. It all comes back to how you interpret a passage. As you study the issue, we find that we need to study to know the author's plain sense of a passage. Now, I readily admit that a, a commitment to the author's intent doesn't always lead to the same conclusion by every Bible student. But I believe the main reason why we disagree is we often try to impose our presuppositions on a particular text. What do I mean by this? So we read a passage with our presuppositions. We've been studying the Bible, some of us for a long time. And we have all these things in our thoughts. And if any of those thoughts are wrong, when we read the passage, we then impose our presuppositions on what we're reading. And so, therefore, we interpret things wrong. Studying the Bible helps us to know Scripture. And I would say everybody needs to do it, right? This is good. But if when we study a passage and we get wrong commentary on it, or we interpret it incorrectly or we listen to one of our favorite Bible preachers explain the passage incorrectly, and then we bring those wrong interpretations of other passages into our study of a new passage, guess what happens? It's a downward spiral. Before you know it, you're calling Ulrich Zwingli a heretic. You get it? It's the same thing. This is why we must attempt to let each passage speak for itself in its context. We need to try to start there. I'm not saying we ignore everything we've ever learned, because if you did, it would be very difficult. You know, what's that word Jesus mean? Uh, what's, who's that Jesus guy? Well, obviously, you know who he is. You've been studying the Bible. We just allow each passage to confront our presuppositions. Every passage should confront our presuppositions to a degree. If we find that every time we read, oh yeah, that's exactly what I thought it would say, and this is what it means, and we assume all the time, we're going to what? Run ourselves into a ditch. Again, we got to be like the Bereans in Acts 17. We must study the scriptures to see if these things are so. Are they true? Is this what it's about? And I do believe you can understand what the scriptures say. But as you all see from church history, there's been a lot of division, hasn't there? And that, that's all a consequence of presuppositions going into the text. That's ultimately what happens. We formulate these systematic theologies, and then when we oppose them, impose them on every passage. Today in the Lord's Supper, it all comes down to the interpretation of one word. One word. Is. I-S, is, one word. 
You interpret that one word wrong, you're in trouble. This is my body. What does is mean? Does it mean it is literally his body? He becomes the body and bread. And when we take a chunk of, take a little bite of that bread today, we are chewing on Jesus. Roman Catholic. Idolatry. Boy, a heresy. Interesting. Just because of one word is being translated wrong and interpreted wrong. Not translated wrong, but interpreted wrong. Or, is it like Martin Luther? There's a spiritual presence of Jesus in the elements. You bite it, and his presence is with you in a special way. Because this is my body. By the way, Calvin has a, a, a form of that also. He believed a form of that. Or, this is my body. Speaking of a symbol, an ordinance, a memorial. This is what I, this is about me and what I'm going to do for you. It's about the gospel. Knowing the gospel and understanding who, in G, who Jesus is and what he did for you. Is that what it's about? I would lean that way, right? But how do we know? The answer is grammatical, historical interpretation of the scripture. We spend time looking at it. And I believe all those answers are found right in the text. In the text local. Because what were they celebrating? Passover, which was what? An ordinance. It was pointing back to something that had previously happened, correct? And it became, it came out of that to form the Lord's Supper. They didn't think, the Jews, when they were eating their Passover meal, they weren't going, hmm, there's some spiritual deliverer that is now with us because we're eating the Passover. Right? They were told to do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way with the Lord's Supper. So the context of the passage tells us what we should do. Now, are there extra aspects of it? Yes, I do believe they're there, and we'll see them as we go along. First, to get our passage into our passage, look at our context a little bit. You know that in Luke 22, the Lord's Supper was started on the night before Jesus' death. We know this as we look at the context. The Lord Jesus instituted this ordinance in the middle of the celebration of another ordinance, which was for the Jews at that time, the Passover. The Lord had sovereignly prepared the disciples for this supper. Remember, two of them had gone and prepared the room in a way that's amazing, showed God's glory off. And he had sovereignly determined a, a, a place to meet and all the things to be set up ahead of time. And then the Lord would become what the supper represented the next night, which we'll talk about as we go along. All of the details of this evening were one big display of God's glory. The Lord was bringing the entire plan of God to its pinnacle, redeeming a people for himself. Jesus used the night to point his disciples to their great redeemer, himself. He was using the Lord's Supper and saying, look at me, know who I am. I am the redeemer. And to highlight the inauguration of the new covenant in his blood, as we will see in a little bit. 
Today we're going to see the institution of the Lord's Supper in the midst of the Passover meal. Notice again, look at your Bibles in verse 14. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Again, the is is very important, isn't it? The Passover meal was especially important to Jesus, as we see here in verse 15, it says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus earnestly desired to eat the Passover with his apostles or his disciples. The wording of this is emphatic. It could lead, literally be translated, I eagerly desired with a great passion to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I think it's interesting to me that Jesus says, he desired to eat the Passover with them. Why? I mean, wasn't the Passover coming to an end? Why would he? What's the big deal? Why eat the Passover with them? Obviously, knew, Jesus knew the great significance of the meal. And at this particular Passover meal, there was a great revelation of himself being made. Jesus desired to eat this meal with them because there was an old revelation of him in the meal, a new revelation of him in the meal, and a hope of a future revelation of him in the meal. That's why he wanted to do it. We'll see in a second. Notice Jesus gives a synopsis of the reason in verse 16. And this verse right here in verse 16, I want you to mark your Bibles. This one right here is, wow, this is significant. This is a very important verse. Look what it says. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time I read this and all the times that I've read it since, there's some really interesting details to this little verse. This literally answers why Jesus is eagerly desiring to eat the Passover meal with his disciples before he suffered. He says, because I say to you, I will by no means, emphatically, eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now notice that Jesus did not say this. He didn't say, I earnestly desire to eat this Passover meal with you because... This is the last time I will eat this Passover meal. Ah, millennialism. It's a fact. He didn't say that. He also did not say, I earnestly desire to eat this meal, Passover meal because I'm changing things up and it's being replaced by a different meal, the Lord's Supper. 
He didn't say that either. What does he say he wants to eat with them? The Passover meal. There's no mention of the Lord's Supper yet, is there? He says, I want to eat this Passover meal because I'm not going to eat it until I, it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. No, in fact, he implies that there's a future fulfillment of the Passover coming. What? So the Lord's Supper does not replace the Passover. This is startling. How does this answer why then? Well, it answers the point because Jesus himself is the point of the whole meal. Both Passover and Lord's Supper. It's all about a revelation of him. Celebrating something old, Passover meal. Establishing something new, Lord's Supper. Anticipating something future, the coming kingdom. Notice, eating it was important at the moment. He would stop eating it, though, for a time. And he would eat it again sometime in the future. That's what the passage says, right? The celebration of the old meal was important to him because it pointed to his past redeeming love. Did he love Israel? Absolutely. How do I know? Because he took them out of Egypt. And when he took them out of Egypt, were they good people? (laughs) No, they were wicked, wretched people. It was a wicked, wretched nation. But God passed over them and judged Egypt and took them out the next night. At the same time, this meal is establishing a new ordinance with its importance. And it was important because it pointed to his present redeeming love, that he was going to die to redeem us from sin. What a great God. And then it also anticipated a future meal. And how it was important for him. Because it pointed to his final redeeming love. You could say that what that is, is that we're redeemed out of these bodies of death. Romans chapter 8. Can't wait for that day. How about you? So as we take the Lord's Supper today, think on this. This is what we think about. The revelation of Jesus Christ in the Lord's Supper. What he did. What he did for us. And what he's going to do. There's hope. All these things are bound up in the Lord's Supper. Wow, what a meal, right? Can you see why it appears that the the early church did this almost every time they met? They went from house to house breaking bread. Some say that that's referencing taking the Lord's Supper. So they took it a lot. I would suggest we probably should do it more here. Why? Because ultimately the Lord's Supper is a beautiful picture of the gospel. That's what it is. It's a rehearsing of the gospel for our minds every time we take it. Jesus and the disciples' participation in the Passover meal had three components. And all three components pointed to Jesus' redeeming love for his own. Jesus longed to eat this meal because the meal revealed himself, his redeeming love, celebrating something old, establishing something new, and anticipating something in the future. So in the same way we take the Lord's Supper, we need to celebrate something old, something new, and something in the future. With this, we see the glory of the gospel on display, something old. Let's start with that, celebrating something old. There we go. 
the, the something old in the passage is taken from Exodus. Again, he, he comes together and what's he want to do? He wants to eat the Passover meal. That's from our passage in Exodus 12. Here's a, key, a few key points for you to remember on the, on the Passover meal. When was it started? The month of Passover was first celebrated on the calendar. It was the first month of the Jewish calendar. It was done the night Israel left Egypt. It was the night before redemption. Very important. Listen. The Passover supper was first celebrated the very night before they left Egypt. It was right before their redemption. Hmm. Does that sound familiar? Interesting, huh? The lamb was selected at the beginning of the week on the 10th day of the month. Hmm. Remember Jesus walked in? There's so many similarities. But yet this is a historical event really happened. They selected this lamb on the 10th. And they killed it on the 15th day of the month. There were four cups in the meal, shared in the meal. The first being the cup of blessing. All the cups were drank after first thanking God for his part of his great mercy shown to them towards the Israelites when they were delivered from Egypt. The Passover was celebrated, like I said, on Nisan 15. The meal was made a requirement of the bilateral Mosaic covenant made between God and Israel in Exodus 24. So the people were told after the fact, you've got to celebrate this meal every single year on the same day. The Passover meal was a required celebration that was meant to remind the Israelites of God's redeeming work. Again, the Passover meal was started the night of their deliverance from Egypt. They killed the lamb celebrated the deliverance one night before they walked out of Egypt. I do believe the feast was a type of another coming redemption, right? The type is what? Christ. But the type did not, and this is so important, did not become obsolete when Jesus initiated or instituted the Lord's Supper. It didn't go away. It's still there. Now, as we will see, Jesus takes the Passover meal, and in the middle of it, he establishes a new ordinance of the new covenant. This did not eliminate the significance of the first one. We see, however, one ordinance is based on the birth of a new one. So this meal gave us a new meal that became a symbol of an even greater redeeming work that our Lord established at the death, burial, and resurrection. The Passover meal is yet another example of a near and far fulfillment. The exodus from Egypt was God redeeming his people from the bondage of slavery from Egypt. The Passover to come was God's redeeming his people from bondage of slavery to sin. God is is a redeeming God. That's the whole point of this Lord's Supper. He's a redeeming God. That's what it's about. This was truly a night to reflect on how Jesus was the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament had pointed to. And yet, it was also a night to point forward to a new time of remembrance of his great redeeming work that would happen the next night at the cross. It also pointed to a future redemption of the body, and I believe of Israel, to restoration. So God's great deliverance of Israel and the meal God established was one huge spotlight pointing forward to what God was going to do redeeming a people through his person and work. Now, do you notice that Luke includes a cup before the Lord's Supper? 
You see that? It actually he passes a cup, and then he does the bread, and then he does another cup. Now, that doesn't mean we do it backwards. We do the bread first. It was because there were more cups in there. Jesus did, didn't just throw out the first part of the meal and say, Oh, hey, listen, we don't need to take this Passover anymore. We're just going to have two things, bread and a cup. That's all we got to have now. He still did the rest of the meal. He did the whole thing. Luke's record of this shows the importance of something old. we got to keep the Old Testament in its context and keep doing those things. Now, does that mean that we have to keep the law? No, because Jesus fulfilled it. We know this. I want you to take an important note, though. The Old Testament feast did not eliminate the point of the feast originally. It did not say, ignore the original setting and establish establishment of this feast of Passover. I think this is often what we do this far from the cross. We think the Lord showed the original meaning in the feast wasn't important. Did the Lord do that? Did he say, oh, those feasts really don't matter when he took the Lord's Supper? No, he didn't. He still did them. All those feasts are what? Still supposed to inform our minds that God had a plan and God was accomplishing something. And they literally happened. If we were interpreting this way, we could totally ignore the Exodus story. We would make it just non-significant historical events that don't really matter. If we emphasize the foreshadowing of the Messiah and the Passover as the only important point, and, and why do I say this? Well, because, guys, when we start reading our Old Testament and we study the Old Testament, a lot of times what, what the new the new evangelical is doing is saying, find Jesus in every passage and ignore what the details. All you want to know, all you want to know is where's Jesus in the Old Testament. But there are historical events within there that we need to know. God is a redeeming God. We know about God based on reading the Old Testament in its context. We don't use the New Testament to reinterpret the Old Testament. We what? Let the Old Testament speak for itself. And a lot of times, what will happen when we get to places like this, we'll say, well, you know, we're not Jewish, and we weren't back then, so who cares? Let's just move on. But, beloved, I think there's a, a discipline issue here. Just because something doesn't light us up and it's not easy reading, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't study it. Jesus, it was important. We should study it. That's why I think all of you should come to Sunday night service and listen to Mark as it goes through the Old Testament. However, I do believe that it, to be a faithful student of the Word, see the first Passover events were fulfillment of God's promises. And if God would not have done it this way, this way, we could not trust to keep His word. He kept His word. Why did the Passover happen? Why did Israel go out of Egypt? Why did those events happen? The answer? Because God had promised that he was going to do it. And he did it. And he did it literally. And it wasn't just, oh, that's not a big deal because it's really pointing to Jesus. Don't, don't, it doesn't matter. It does matter. He made a promise that he would, after 400 years, he was going to deliver them. And what did he do? He did it. Why did he do it? Because they were good people? No, every one of the firstborn should have died too, shouldn't they? 
But they didn't. He delivered them because he's faithful to his promises. God is a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping, loyal lover of his people. And that is something that we all need to hold on to. We need to embrace that and think on that. God keeps his promises. Aren't you thankful for that? I'm thankful. So as we take the Lord's Supper, you can see why gratitude is one of the main themes of the Lord's Supper. When Jesus thanks, it says, literally, he thanks for the previous cup. Why? Why is he thanking for the previous cup? Because it's not the Lord's Supper. It's the Passover meal. It's not part of the, what we're even going to be taking. Why is he thankful? Because it was God showing his faithfulness to the people of Israel, which means there's hope. What a glorious God, right? This is why the word Eucharist is used. It comes from the idea of giving thanks. So today, as we take the Lord's Supper, what is the main, one of the main things that we should have in our hearts? Gratitude, thankfulness. There's an emphasis on this. Being thankful for the things that happened in the past. Being thankful for the things that are happening today. Being thankful for what will happen in the future. I believe this, too, should be a part of every Lord's table. Every time we get together, gratitude. Gratitude for God being a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. Notice also something old portion of the Passover meal is emphasis on sharing. It says, take this and share it among yourselves. That's where we get the word communion, the idea of sharing. This is where we, we, we get the idea of participating together, this whole idea of uh, uh, sharing in the joy of the gospel, the redeeming love of God. We come together in fellowship and we share or participate together in reflecting on God's redeeming love. I would say as we take the Lord's Supper, we are literally doing the gospel together. We are literally coming together and enjoying Christ together. We're communing together and sharing Him with our eyes on Him saying, Christ did it. Christ is good. God is a redeeming God. This is why there's absolutely no room for self-centered hearts as we approach the Lord's Supper. This is a time of reflecting on the condescending God who graciously redeems us, coming together to share and worship in His redeeming work for us. Now again, here's an interesting part. Jesus both looks back and forward. Notice because He says, take this cup in the Passover-only section of the meal and share it because I'm not going to drink it from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Again, give thanks, share this cup, because I'm not going to drink from it anymore until a future point. Now think about this. If you're a disciple, if you were one, put yourself in their spots for a second. This might have, must have been totally, this must have thrown them completely off. Think about how you would have interpreted this. You're a disciple. you got the Messiah sitting with you. And he says, because I'm not going to drink from it, that cup, the Passover cup, I'm not going to drink from it from now on until the kingdom of, kingdom of God comes. What do you think they would have thought? Jesus is saying, share this Passover cup of blessing with joy and thanks because I'm not going to drink it from now on until the kingdom of God comes. 
they must have thought this. Yes, the kingdom must be right around the corner. It's, it's got to be. Because after all, we take the Passover meal how often? Once a year. Every year. And so what's going to happen? It's got to be within a year. It's got to be within a year. He's probably going to do this very soon. They must have thought the kingdom is going to happen very soon. And he's going to be eating this with us and drinking from this cup with us very soon. But did that happen? That's a good question. Depends on how you interpret it. If you interpret Jesus' words as not really literal, he's not really going to be eating that or drinking that cup with them or eating that meal with them again, then the kingdom's already. And after all, every time we sit down with him, his spiritual presence is with us, and we're enjoying him, and he's eating with us. Is that what it means? It doesn't appear that way. Why would we go there? After all, what they say is he's in the bread. He's not eating the bread. Even there, when they go with that, that doesn't work. Again, Jesus saw past his death to the glorious results of his redeeming work. Both the already of redemption and the not yet of redemption. He saw their being set free from sin and establishing the kingdom where all that he had required would be done to be fulfilled. He knew that. It was already spiritual, but not yet completed, fulfilled. With this, we see our Savior at his finest. He was focused on the results of the cross, his resurrection and his ascension, and his return. I don't know about you, but I have, con- I have to confess, I don't think like he does. I don't. If I see pain coming, by the way, all I can see is what? Pain. I can't see the joy of the victory of the results of what God will do when the, with the pain before it. I don't know. I, I, am I the only one? If I know a surgery is going to happen or something physically painful is going to happen to me, all I can think about is what? That. And I try to train my mind to look past it, but even then I, when I train my mind to think past it, it's, it's very short small. Oh, is it worth it? Right? But Jesus is looking way past it. He sees the full fulfillment of all of it in the kingdom at the end. He's looking past it. What do we see here? We see Hebrews 12 too, don't we? We see it. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I truly believe Jesus saw his work at its full fulfillment, far past the Passover. So he called his disciples to celebrate the Passover that night with joy. So, let's look. Establishing something new. Establishing something new. A side note. Luke's gospel does not give a full explanation of the institution of the Lord's Supper. We'll see that a little bit with 1 Corinthians 11. It is important to note that much of the details of the supper are left out by Luke because they are probably all well known by the Christian community by the time Luke is writing in 60 AD. 
That's approximately 30 years after Jesus had already established the Lord's Supper. So Paul didn't even give all the details of the 10 years previously. He just gives the details that progress his main themes. And that's very important. He's pointing out these themes of the kingdom of God to come, all these issues. So now we see Jesus took most likely the middle of the Passover meal and transformed it into a new ordinance. Look in verse 19. And when he had taken some of the bread, he gave thanks, and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Again, what we see here is the bread. He starts with the bread, again, giving thanks. Now, I confess this is really astounding. Again, if you'll think about it for just a second, meditate on this for a second. The bread represents his body that was going to be crushed. I personally wish I could, I would just thank God for the common blessings of my life. You too? I wish I'd just be thankful for, you know, my wife more and my kids. And even when they spill juice on the chair right before service, I'd still be thankful. I just wish I'd be thankful for those little things, right? But here Jesus is giving thanks for the bread that represents his body that's going to die. Don't know about you? Think about that. How can he give thanks for bread that represents his death the next day? The answer is, again, Jesus sees past his sufferings to the effect of the death. He gives thanks for the bread that represents his disciples' way to be atoned for. And boy, do they need it. Look at the passages a little bit further down where they fought over who's the greatest. They needed it, right? He's given thanks for the bread which represents his body that would be crushed so that they could be atoned for. This is a reason to thank our Lord, isn't it? As we take this today, just realize he went with his eyes wide open to the cross, knowing full well what he was going to do for you. Reason to thank God, right? We see here a couple of very important points about the initial Lord's Supper. This is supposed to point to Jesus, not to be a religious ritual used to try and increase one's merit before God. We understand this, right? We're not taking this so that God will like us more and so that God will take us to heaven. It doesn't work that way. It's all about who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us and what Jesus will do. That's what the bread is supposed to point to. By the way, the Passover, the bread, was known as the bread of affliction, pointing to the afflicted afflictions that the Israelites suffered while in slavery in Egypt. In this case, the bread was going to mean affliction for the one who represented it so that the, his people would not suffer the affliction of slavery anymore, of sin anymore. Third, Jesus gives the exact reason why the disciples were required to take the, the Lord's Supper. And here you go. I want you to notate in your Bibles. Here you go. This one's very important. Why do you do it? Do this in remembrance of me. That's, that's the key phrase. It's the one that all hermeneutics has been thrown out for years. It's all about remembering him. 
Not do this to get something more of me. Do this in remembrance of me. What I did. Beloved, we take this to delight in the person and work of Jesus. He is good and he has done what we could not do. A side note, I believe we see by church history a warning. Reading too much into symbols can get us in trouble, can't they? Many of our early reformers had a hard time separating themselves from the Roman Catholic Church. Wrong spiritual, spiritualization of the Bible. The Roman Catholic Church, like I said, said that Jesus literally becomes the bread and the cup, so they're literally eating it. Now, y'all say this is absolutely crazy. Many of you in here are thinking that's nuts, right? But, friends, this is what idolatrous hearts do. They come up with any kind of way to worship anything but the one true God. And that's what it is. It's worshiping a, a piece of bread. They say he becomes that. The early reformers, however, had a hard time breaking away from some of those wrong presuppositions. Those idols, this is a very important point, those idols have a real stronghold even on believers at times. They can hold on to some of these things and have a hard time letting go of them. Why do you think Martin Luther called Zwingli a heretic? Why? Because he didn't want to give up all of that tradition. There was a little bit in there. His presuppositions were keeping him from letting it go completely. We've got to be very careful of over-interpreting the Bible. I think this is why, I, I, I know it sounds crazy, but just let the Bible speak for what it says. We don't have to come up with a whole bunch more. It says it. It did not say, do this and rem- so that you can get more of me. If you're here today to take the Lord's Supper so you can get a little bit more of Jesus, you're missing it. You have all of him. You have the gospel. You are filled with the spirit. God has given us his spirit. He also didn't say, do this so that you can experience my presence more. And again, what is that? That's exactly the problem, don't we? This is not going to be some mystical thing when you come up and you, or that little piece of bread. Go, uh, uh, ooh, I feel more spiritual now. That's not what it's about. It's about reflecting on what Christ has done for you. That he died and rose from the dead. I'm alive in him. He says, do this so you can remember who I am and what I've done for you. Put real simple, when we take the Lord's Supper, we remember the gospel. We reflect on how we are responsible for his death. And boy, I can see why we should take the Lord's Supper more, don't you? I think we need to reflect on that more, don't we? But no, we don't need to take it so that we get some spiritual experience more. Because I think we're falling into the trap there of thinking it's something different. Again, what specifically do we need to remember about him? He gave his body for us. 
He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might have the righteousness of God. This is arguably the finest doctrine of the entire Bible for the sinner to need and, and reflect on. Jesus gave himself over to be crushed for our, us. The doctrine is one doctrine that is the primary motivation for obedience in the Christian life. How about this one? I think taking the Lord's Supper should provoke you to go out and obey your Savior. It really should. After the Lord's Supper, it should be one of those times of rejoicing and enjoying God, and you go out and you worship Him, reflecting on what He did for you. And so if we make the Lord's Supper about anything more than the plain, pure gospel, I think we run the risk of turning this into a self-promoting experience. The cup. So some of you have asked, why don't we use wine in the Lord's Supper? I'm briefly going to go over this again. I found out some new information this week as I was studying. Very interesting. Did you know the guy Welch? Welch's? Welch's? He was the guy that changed it to grape juice. A little self-seeking, huh? He was an abolitionist. And that's when it changed from wine to grape juice. Interesting, huh? His name's Welch. Welch's, rather. So, but folks, to be honest, I don't think it matters. I'm still there. It's not about what the substance is that we use. It's about what the substance points to. I I really don't care whether we have Welch's grape juice, Publix brand juice, or a little red wine. (gasps) He said we might. No, we're not going to. I don't want anybody in here to stumble. But I took it for many years, but I was dead lost when I was taking it in the Episcopal Church. I personally don't think it matters. It's all about Jesus. Don't miss the point. It's about him and his shed blood that inaugurated the new covenant. Beloved, the the cup being poured out points to the shedding of blood that had to be spilt to ratify the new covenant. When God established the Mosaic covenant with the people, Moses made a sacrifice and sprinkled the blood. Now the new covenant was being established and this meant blood had to be shed. Just to make this very clear, shedding blood points to the death of something Someone or something. In this case, Jesus was pointing to his own death again. And it was the beginning of the new covenant. And again, the new covenant has a near and far fulfillment. The same thing. Look with me at Jeremiah 31 real quick. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand, bringing them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their hearts, and I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, if if we stopped at this place, everybody in the room says... I can really see that's just us. It's not Israel, but look at this. Verse 34. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord, 
who gives the sun for light by day and fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that the it waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this day, if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. What do we have? An already not yet situation. We've been grafted into the olive branch. We're now a part of the new covenant, but there is a promise. There's a promise of full fulfillment of this in the future. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He knows it. Friends, there's an, we, we get it. This already not yet. All of us who have been saved by the Lord have been brought into the joy of the new covenant. But I believe this passage points to a final fulfillment of this in the future also. I believe every believer in Jesus Christ is in the new covenant. But I also believe that God has a final fulfillment of these promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants and the nation itself as it says in that last verse, the millennium kingdom. I believe Jesus is clearly pointing to this in the upper room. So he's anticipating something to come. Got to hurry. You ready? Again, Jesus pointed to the Passover and its past redemption. Jesus pointed to the Passover and how it prefigured a coming greater Passover. And finally, Jesus points to the Passover, the Lord's Supper, and their coming fulfillment in the kingdom. Now, get this. This is important. This is where some of you are going to, go home, are going to have to go home and study your Bibles and say, I don't know if I agree with Pastor Mike. But look what the verse says. Look back at Luke 22, verse 16. Look at the end of verse 16. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. The it in verse 16 is very crucial. What is the it? Obviously, it is pointing to the Passover meal. Obviously. This is at the beginning, before he even takes the bread and institutes the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper hadn't even happened yet. He hadn't started that part. Luke's recording this to show that there is still some validity to the Passover. There's something about the Passover. He says, until the Passover is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That's what it, the it is. Jesus will not eat the Passover again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, what does that come to your mind? What are you thinking? What's involved with eating the Passover meal? A little bit of bread and wine? No. You eat something else. What do you eat? Meat. You eat a lamb. You eat the lamb that was sacrificed. He says, I'm not going to eat the Passover meal that included a lamb that was killed. <gasps> Wait. Jesus is going to eat a killed animal in the future? Yes, he is. And all of you in here say, wait a second, you're telling me there's going to be death in the millennium kingdom? Absolutely. There's going to be sacrifices in the millennium kingdom. Why? Well, because he says it. Until I eat it, it is until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I won't eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I, as I read this, 
And all it crashed in on me. I was like, well, what else do I read it? Do I have to change my presuppositions? It looks as though, doesn't it? Beloved, it is very clear that in the Millennium Kingdom there's going to be sacrifices. Ezekiel talks about it, and all the ah mills and post mills in the room hate it. What? I don't like this. You're telling me, what about Hebrews? Come on, no more. He says it. What do I do with the words? I reinterpret it? Or is he up there chewing on a lamb bone up in heaven? I'm, I'm sorry, but it doesn't look that way. Verse 18, look what he says. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Is he up there drinking wine too? This is the not yet aspect of the kingdom. Again, I think Jesus is pointing to a time in the future when he will eat and drink in the kingdom with his people. I believe that is here on earth during the millennium reign. It makes sense. I believe when the time of the Gentiles is complete, Romans eleven twenty five, Jesus will call Israel and Judah back together, as Jeremiah 31, 31 states. He will restore Israel during the tribulation. During this time, a great amount of Jewish people will ultimately help repopulate the earth. Now again, what am I doing? Those are my presuppositions. I admit it. But do my presuppositions contradict or agree with it? Here it agrees. Here it agrees. Do I think my Amil brothers and sisters are brothers and sisters, or I'm going to be like Martin Luther and call them heretics? No, I'm not going to call them heretics. I'm going to understand that presuppositions drive the way that we think. But I do think we need to read the Bible for what it says. Well, Jesus says, For I say to you, I will never again eat it until the kingdom of, heaven, uh, kingdom of God, until... Until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Notice I shall never again. By the way, I think this eliminates preterist view of everything's fulfilled. Right? Obviously. Everything has not been fulfilled. He ha- I haven't. There's no record. Nobody ever said Jesus ate the Passover meal again. He was here for how long? Before he ascended. Forty days. Did another Passover meal get around? No. There were no more Passover meals. Did he eat it when 70 A.D. happened and Israel was wiped out? Well, that's their explanation of the coming. They say he came again at the 70 A.D. Don't see that either. I don't think, I think that was destruction. What do you think? Luke 22, look, what he says to his disciples in the context. 22-28, he says, and I think this is a slam dunk verse for God's plan for Israel in the future. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, talking to his disciples. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It is very clear that the 12 apostles... Judas falls out, Matthias comes in. I guess you could argue Paul, but I don't think so. I think he's an apostle to the Gentiles. 
Those 12 are going to what? Judge the 12 tribes of Israel during the kingdom. Otherwise, we have a real hard time. What does that mean? I have no idea. I have no idea. It's spiritual. He's really talking about the 12 Gentile tribes. No. I don't know what you do with these verses unless it really means what it says. Obviously, the 12 tribes of Israel are the 12 tribes of Israel. And God's going to fulfill this in the future. So in conclusion, what does the Lord's Supper point us to? It points us to the fact that God's great redemption of a people from bondage in Egypt, where the supper was then established out of the Passover meal, God is a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. Praise God, right? That means your salvation is secure. As secure as our salvation, it was that God delivered them and kept His promise because He said He was going to do it. As sure. Second, it points out God's second and primary redemption of His people from bondage of sin and the penalty of sin's death through the person and work of Christ. We are redeemed. We're set free from sin and the penalty of sin because of Christ. And finally, it points to God's final redemption of a people from the effects of the curse and Israel's final redemption back to a, a, a promise that God made with them and then being regrafted back into the olive branch. The key to the whole thing through the meal is Jesus. 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 Past, present, and future. So today, as we take the communion... Let us rejoice and give thanks to our redeeming God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your amazing faithfulness, your kind grace. The Lord Jesus, focus on the eternal joy.